Have a seat. Good morning, church. I'm excited for our message today. I'm going to speak on something that as I was preparing this week, I had the thought that I've never taught on this in the 10 years that I've been here from the pulpit, and I'm excited to. Now, we've been in the book of Daniel. This is our slide, um, living in Babylon, and throughout this uh, series, we've seen Daniel who came out of his homeland as an exile, captured by Babylon. He's living in Babylon, a minority culture, basically, under the power of Babylon. And we got to see all these great lessons for how to live in a context like that. He was in his teens when he first came in. We finished in chapter 6 with him being thrown in the lion's den as an old man. So we got to see the lifespan of Daniel. And then as he moved past chapter 6, Daniel began to write and tell us about some of the private dreams and visions that God gave him. And that's where we're at. Last week, we saw him interact with a a dream that was given to him where he was seeing all the great one world kingdoms that would rise. There's Babylon, we know. There's Mede and Persian, we know. We haven't got to it yet, but it's going to be Greece is the next one. And then there was this fourth kingdom that was terrifying that he's talking about. Now, today, I'm going to do something different because... I sat down and I looked at all of Daniel and I tried to think about how I could teach in a way that would give you pieces to prophetic puzzles that you could put together. And I need to jump ahead out of the book of Daniel and I'm going to come into the New Testament in the book of Thessalonians and give you a passage that Paul is writing about in answering a question that later after I answer it to you, I'm going to take you back to Daniel and understand why I'm doing it. And I titled the message today, The Absent Church, because as we've been talking about these future kingdoms, and there's this one yet to come with this one world little horn is the description, the Antichrist, the beast, a lot of names given to this leader. The question that I ask is, where is the church? Where is the church in this picture? And We're going to get that answer today. And let me read to you the passage. And it comes out of Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now as we study this passage that you would just teach us, that you would shape our thinking, and that we would be led to a place where we put our hope in the right things. The appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen. Now, The absent church is the name of this. Paul's giving us some prophecy here, a prophetic word, a word that comes from God about something in the future that we would not know otherwise if he didn't tell us. It's revelation in that sense. Last week, I I told you this. I said, prophecy does certain things, right? If you can remember last week, it alarms us. Sometimes we get the picture of what's ahead and we go, whoa, and we're alarmed. But it also informs us. It instructs us. We learned that last week. And it also comforts us. It reassures us. Because throughout Daniel, what we have seen the prophet do is we've seen him talk about these future scenarios where sometimes it's terrifying, but he always takes us back to the very end. And he keeps weaving that through where he would say, and the, and the king, the ancient of days, or the son of man, 
returns and the saints of God inherit the kingdom forever and ever and ever. And he kept bringing us back to that. It's to reassure us that everything that's going to happen, I want you to know the end. And the end is you win if you're in Christ. He returns, he sets everything in order, and the saints inherit the kingdom. That's how it ends. And so prophecy has that reassuring aspect. You're going to see that again today, but prophecy does something else. It corrects us. It corrects our thinking that is not right. And that's what you're seeing today in this passage from Paul. That's the first point. The first point is, if you're tracking with me on the slides, prophecy corrects us in verse 13, because he says, we do not want you to be uninformed. So they're, in a sense, they, they, were, they, they had a, a wrong thinking about what was happening, because Paul's writing a letter to a specific church in Thessalonica. And what they were believing, what they were being told, what they had heard was that they had missed Christ or that their loved ones who died, who were now buried in the ground, were going to miss out when Jesus came back. They, they believed he was coming back and they were waiting for him to come back. And when he came back, it was like, what about, they, they missed out. They're already in the ground. They missed it. And so there's some wrong thinking about this. In fact, let me just, I can jump over to 2 Thessalonians. This is the next letter he wrote him. He says this in chapter 2. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, that's important, those words, gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. See that? He's trying to correct their wrong thinking. I don't know how much of what was believed, but he even references maybe you got a letter that seemed to be from us, but it wasn't. But they had some wrong thinking about how it all plays out in the end. So this is what one of the things that prophecy does. It corrects us Believers were uninformed and believers were losing hope because of that misinformation. Because he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, I don't want you to be like the lost world where when death happens, that's the end. And they have no hope. You are not to be like them. I read about a man who had traveled in another country and he had gone to a, a Muslim funeral, and he watched and observed where they all came, and they were around the coffin. And at the, some point in it, they came and they gave a, a mint or candy to every person, and they put it in their mouth, and they sat there honoring that person until the mint was gone. And when your mint was gone, you turned and you walked away, and there was a symbolism that that's the end. That's the end. But we don't think like that. And Paul's saying, I don't want you to think like that. I want you to think like what Paul's going to tell you. It's not the end. In fact, he's using this word, asleep. Now, we're to have a hope. And what I love about this is you're seeing another aspect of Paul's writing where he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof so that the man of God may be fully equipped. See, these Thessalonican believers were not fully equipped. They were sometimes grieving or losing hope like the lost world. And so God's word is meant to instruct us in a way. And here, correct and reprove your thinking so that what you believe is grounded in truth. And that's, that should be how it is for everything. What you believe about relationships, about money, about politics, about leadership, what does the Bible say? If you have wrong thinking, then God's word needs to correct and reprove it so that you may be fully equipped to do good work. He's going to do that right now. The Thessalonians needed correction. They were inco inco incomplete. And here's what happens next. Paul corrects their view of believers' death. 
We read in verse 14, it says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring back with him those who have fallen asleep. And the first point that I want to make here is that our hope starts with Christ's death. So they were thinking, my, my relative who said they believed in Christ is in the grave. I'm kind of doubting about he might have missed out that Christ returned. Actually, the, the, the hope that you have for your future starts with the death of Jesus Christ and your faith in that, that he really came as the Son of God, God in the flesh. He lived the perfect life. He was crucified for your sins, went into that grave, and came out alive. Because he says, for since, everything else he's going to say is based on this. For since, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's the foundation. And then after that foundation, he goes on to say this, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so my first point is just to say that our hope starts with Christ's death. It's the basis for our hope. And the second point is that death is like sleep. That's how he's describing it. He's correcting their view of that. He will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. And you can see a contrast there between being alive and in his description of those who are not alive as asleep. That's how he describes death, asleep. That relative you put in the ground, asleep is what he says. Now, I'm going to give this to you. This is really interesting. We get the modern word for cemetery from the old word for hotel, for motel. Okay? Koimaterion is the word cemetery. And the verb form, koimato, means to fall asleep. Paul is writing, and he's using this word, koimaterion, and it means this, a place to sleep before continuing your journey. Now just imagine that. When you walk into a cemetery today, the word back then that they used was hotel. It's like you falling asleep. This is a place where you've fallen asleep until you're ready to continue your journey. That dead relative that you put in the ground has not missed out. They're sleeping until they're ready to continue their journey. Isn't that amazing? Are you with me on that? I think that's pretty fascinating. What a play on words that he uses, right? Now, the next thing I'm going to tell you is that sleeping believers are with God. Because he says this. He says, For this we declare to you from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the... Up, up, let me back up. He says, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he says, yeah, the body's here, but when he comes back, they're with him. He's bringing them with him. And this just reinforces what the Bible teaches, that, that the real you is inside of the body. The body goes in the ground, but the real you goes up and you're with God. This is why Paul can say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he's shaping their thinking. You think that your relative's there, but it's like sleep. And the real them is up there with God. And when he comes back, he's going to bring them with him. Okay, so he's correcting their view of death. Now he's going to correct their view of timing or the chronology or the order of how it all is going to unfold. So the first thing I want you to notice is that the answer that he's going to give them here, it's like a certified promise, okay? Because I kind of read it a couple times, but let me go through it again. He says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then in verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now you can't just pass over that phrase. He is saying to them, what I'm about to say to you comes from God himself. And it's truth. It's like a certified promise that what I'm about to say to you is going to happen. Now, how does he know this? Right? What he's about to say was a mystery. No one knew it. No one knew about this thing he's describing. Where did it come from? 
And as you kind of study these things, there's a couple thoughts here. First of all, if you know the life of Paul, do you remember when he was persecuting the church as Saul? And he's traveling down that Damascus road, and then it says that, that, that the Lord appeared to him. It says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that's the beginning of his conversion where he becomes, he now, instead of persecuting the church, is going to become a believer in Christ, serve him and serve the church, and eventually die for the church. But do you know what happened immediately after that conversion? He sequestered away and was trained by the Lord himself. I mean, talk about a teacher. It could be that in that time period, there were things taught like this that no one else knew. Or could be something else. Go to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 2 to 4. I'm not going to read it for you, but in those passages, Paul says this. Just listen to this. Paul says, I know a man. I know a man who was lifted up to the third heaven. Now, in the Bible, when it uses the word heaven, there's three heavens. There's, when it, sometimes when it's saying heaven, it's talking about the blue sky that we can see. Sometimes when it says heaven, it's talking about outer space, the space between the third heaven and the first heaven, outer space. And the third heaven is where God dwells. And Paul says, I know a man who was lifted up to the third heaven. And then he says this, I don't know if it was a vision or if it was an out-of-body experience, which is a pretty phenomenal thing to say. And he says that more than once in the verses. He's talking about it, and he goes back, he says, I don't know if this was a vision or an out-of-body experience, but this man was lifted up to the third heaven, and he saw stuff. He saw incredible stuff, and then when he came back, God told him, don't share it with anyone. Don't make it public. Don't write about it. But Paul knows him. It could be that in conversation with him, it's a source where he gets a mystery that everyone else doesn't know. But my point is to say to you is this. The words I declare, we declare to you by a word from the Lord is telling you what I'm about to say comes from God. Okay? Now, number two, as he's correcting their view of chronology and time and the order of things, is he's talking about this point in time because he uses the phrase, the coming of the Lord. So he says... He says, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Now, do you remember in uh, chapter 2 when I was reading, it uses that same phrase concerning the coming of our Lord. That phrase is pointing you down the timeline of history to a point, a point in time where something happens. If it's, if it's a, a historical timeline, a word you would use is punctiliar. It's like a puncture on that timeline. And here we are now, and he's pointing you down there, and he says, the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord where he does a gathering. As he already described in Thessalonians chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And here he's using this, this same description. A point in time down there, and he calls it the coming of the Lord. Okay? So, I say that to you, because at this point I'll pause and by way of instruction, just tell you there, there are two points in time yet to happen down that timeline. One is the one he's talking about, the coming of the Lord, where there's a gathering. Okay, now the second one actually is in chapter 5 in, in Thessalonians, where he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, many of us who grew up in church, we know that phrase. Like a thief in the night. His coming is like, like you didn't know the robber was coming and then suddenly the robber's there. It's a surprise is the point of that phrase. But the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord are two separate future things. Okay? Nineteen times in the Old Testament, the phrase day of the Lord is used. Always the context is judgment. Four times in the New Testament, always the context is judgment. The day of the Lord is, is describing the day that Jesus intercedes into that timeline of history on earth and finally puts a halt to the evil that's going on, to the plans of Satan, and there is judgment that comes on that day. The coming of the Lord is not about that kind of judgment. It's about a gathering 
unto himself his faithful. Okay? Now keep that in mind, and I'm going to show you some other parts of Scripture that demonstrate this. So, at the coming of the Lord, there's only two kinds of people that are talked about in that event. You know what they are? It's not believers and unbelievers. It's dead believers and alive believers. And that's what you're seeing in this. There's those who are asleep and those who have been left behind until the coming of the Lord. Those are the two kinds of people for that event. Now, which one are you? You should know the answer to that. <laughs> Some of you are falling asleep. You look dead right now. Are you with me? Right? I mean, at this point when Paul's writing this letter, many of those in that early church had passed away. They were fallen asleep. But those who are alive, they're like, we're hoping he's coming back. We, if he comes back, we don't have to experience death. We don't have to experience physical death because he's come back. But guess what? They all died. And, and life in history continued on all the way up to right now where you now are those left behind until the coming. And everyone who put their faith in Christ who has died, they're asleep in the ground. Those are the two kinds of people at this event. Okay? Now, number three, correcting their view of the timing of all this and chronology. Let me give you the chronology of the event, the order. There's an order to it. Okay, and he, and he reads through it. The first is that the Lord is going to descend from heaven. Let me just read it in verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, there's the two kinds of people, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so the order goes like this. Number one, the Lord descends from heaven. And how do we know that's happening? There's three things he gives us. There's a cry of command, a calling out to gather unto himself. There is a voice of an archangel. I could preach an entire sermon just on angels and the order of angels and what archangels are. But the short version right now is that archangels are the highest ranking angel in the organization of angels. We know of Michael, who we get his name. He is an archangel. But it says the voice of an archangel and then the sound of a trumpet. That is the, we know it's happening because we hear those things. Number two in the chronology is that the dead in Christ or those who have fallen asleep, they go first. Which is, there's a bit of an irony there because you have the church here that's left behind because, until the coming uh, of, of Christ. And they're worried about their dead relative who put their faith in Christ. Oh, they missed it. No, actually, they're going to go first. You think you're first in line because you're still alive? No. The people who have died that have been buried, they go first. They go first and meet the Lord. Now, don't miss this. He's talking about a resurrection. This is the whole point of our faith, that death is not the end. The whole point of our faith is that the Bible describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of resurrection. He is the first, like a tree that you planted is supposed to bring forth fruit. And you look out there and you're waiting every day. Is there going to be a fruit? We planted an av avocado tree, I don't know how many years ago. Still no fruit. We go out there and we look. Is there an avocado yet? One day, I'm going to go out there. Avocado, finally. Right? That's the first. And that's how they describe Jesus' resurrection. He is the first. And there will be many more that come after. And when that trumpet sounds... In the voice of the archangel, it will call forth the dead that have been buried, who have put their faith in Christ. It will come out of the ground, and they will go to meet him. Now, remember, they're, they're already with him, right? It's just the body that's down there. But it's important that you don't miss it that the same body that dies, that goes into the ground, is the same body that comes out alive, just like Jesus. It was the same body. People have tried to explain away the resurrection of Christ by saying, oh, it was like a ghost. It was just a spirit. No, it was the same body because it took them sometimes a minute or two, but they recognized him. 
He had the scars. But did you notice all of the other brutality of the crucifixion was gone? Only the two scars here from the nails, the side here, he kept a few to remind us. And that's a marker. That is Christ. But the ripping up of his back, the punching of his face, the ripping out of his beard, the crown of thorns, the mutilation of his body, gone. So don't have this thought that if I'm in a car crash and my body is mutilated and they put me into the ground, a mutilated body, that that's the body that comes out, a mutilated body. No. It's changed. You get a new body. It's the same body remade, strong, never going to age. I could preach a whole sermon on that. It's, it's a new you. Same body Restrengthened, fixed, made perfect. The sin nature is gone. But that's the first. What's number three? What comes after that? Those who are left behind until he comes back. The left alive Christians. And here's what it says about them they are caught up. Let me just read it again. Right? It says, The dead will rise first. That's resurrection. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. There's not a resurrection for those who are left behind because they're not ever, they didn't die. They don't rise again because they didn't die. So something else happens to them. What happens to them? It's this word called caught up. Now, I think my, my slide, I, I said the absent church. I, I, I was going to say the raptured church. How many of you ever heard of the word rapture? Okay, so if you grew up in church, you probably heard the word rapture. Rapture means this, it's caught up. Okay, but I want to give you more details on this. So right here, the word caught up. When Paul was writing this in Koine Greek, Old Greek, he used a word called harpazo, which is a verb that means these things. My next slide. To carry off by force. To claim oneself eagerly, it happens fast. In fact, somewhere else in Scripture, it describes it as happening in the twinkling of an eye. So here we are. We hear the trumpet, the archangel, whew, twinkling of an eye. We're caught up. It's not, and you know why? That's important because Jesus didn't go up that way. Jesus ascended slowly. He was with the disciples, and then he ascended, and they were like, whoa, there he goes like a hot air balloon. That's not us. We're going to be like a rocket, even faster than that. The twinkle of an eye, you blink, they're gone. And you're in the clouds. And, and this is my favorite part of the meaning of this word, to rescue from the danger of destruction. Now that is interesting, because how are you rescuing me? What, are we, what, what danger and destruction am I being saved from? And that's, that's where part of all these pieces come together in, in prophetic history. Because, and I put up here Revelation 3.10. As you read Revelation, Revelation is a book full of prophecy. This is what's going to happen. It's a lot of terrible stuff that's going on. But the very first few chapters are about churches. And they're like, this church, you struggle with this. This church, you struggle with that. You got to get your act together. And here he's talking to a church. He says in Revelation 3.10, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And it works like this. There's going to be a snatching away of the church, this catching up to himself in the clouds. And then something else is going to happen. But on earth, what happens is judgment. And so there's a way in what he's saying there I'm, I'm going to take you away from that. And I'm going to say more about that later. But I want you to see that. Now, you say, Pastor, well, why do you use the word rapture? Well, Paul wrote it in Greek. Greek was the common language at that time. Then later, Greek became less used, and Latin was the common language. And people began to translate the Bible into Latin. And if you had a Bible translated in Latin, you're reading along, you got to this verse, you got to that word, caught up, the word was rapturo. The Latin word for harpazo was rapturo. 
And we get our word rapture from that. When we say rapture, our English word is caught up. That's all it means. We could say the harpazo church. That would be using Paul's word. But we use the translated word into Latin, raptured. I could say the caught up church. Okay, but it all means the same. That's why we use the word rapture if you were wondering that. Okay, now, before I get to my last point in this passage for Paul, I want to show you something. I'm going to contrast the two returns. I want you to see that there are differences between them. And then you find these in Scripture. Remember I said there's two events, two punctiliar events on the timeline of history. We'll look down. There's the coming of the Lord and there's the day of the Lord. And just look at these, the, the contrast between them. I actually changed the color so you could see the difference. The day of the Lord, the Son of Man is on the clouds. The coming of the Lord, ascending believers are in the clouds. The day of the Lord, angels are doing the gathering. If you read about that, it says he sends his angels out to the corners of the earth and they're gathering together people. Those are some of the most famous verses where it says one was taken and one was left. That is the day of the Lord and they are taken to judgment. Christ does the gathering personally at the coming of the Lord. On the day of the Lord, there's no resurrection mentioned. Here he's talking about the dead are going to rise. Resurrection is the main theme. Day of the Lord, there's nothing about order. Coming of the Lord, it's the principal lesson right here. I've got to give you the right order here so you know. You know what? You who are alive, you go after the dead. And I'm just trying to show you that when you read Scripture, you see these contrasts, that they're not the same event. Okay? Now keep in mind, because everything I'm giving you, I circle back through this series in Daniel. And so I'm giving you a piece right now. Okay, let's, let's move on to the last point here. Paul is going to refocus their hope. Did I, did I give the last point there? I don't know if I wrote it up there, but it, the last point actually in the contrast is judgment. Okay, the day of the Lord is judgment, coming of the Lord. Um, he's not judging their sin. Uh, Paul refocuses their hope in 17 and 18. He says, then we who are alive, right, we're caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore, I've said all of this, therefore, encourage one another with these words. See how they always do that? He always takes you back to the purpose of why I'm giving you a prophetic word. And I'm giving you the prophetic word to encourage you so that you know, so that you know that you haven't been left left, the, the dead haven't been left behind, that he's still coming in the future. And look at what comes out of that. First of all, everyone's re reunited. You thought that your dead believer, believing relative had missed it. Actually, you're going to meet them in the clouds. There's a reunion, a family reunion in the clouds, and Christ is there. And that's the two points that I just kind of close out this passage with. Everyone is reunited, and everyone is with Christ in the clouds and notice what he says. And so we will always be with the Lord. Again, that forever and ever kind of context. From that moment on, we will never be separated from Christ. We will always be with him, his people. You know, he's the groom and we are the bride. That's the analogy that Paul uses in the New Testament. And just like when a bride comes down the aisle, the groom's here waiting, the bride is brought, and there's this union. They're brought together, right? That's what it's like. We are brought upward to where he is, and there's this union with him. And from that point on, we're always with the bride and the groom, always with. Now, let me pause for a second because I got I to gotta connect some of the puzzle pieces for you. And let, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to my next slide and I'm going to remind you when we were in Daniel, I was using this graphic. You remember this graphic? This graphic was showing you that Daniel oftentimes is using two screens. There's two things in history going on. And I was using the analogy, and I'm saying this because I know we got some people who haven't been here in the Daniel series. But I was using the analogy of the TV show 24, where I used to watch that, and there'd be multiple screens, and you'd be watching the good guy here and the bad guy here, and something's going on. Multiple screens. There's two screens. In chapter 6, we saw him going, 
here's what's going on on earth. And there were all these kingdoms rising up. And it finished with this kingdom, the last Gentile king, the lion king, not L-I-O-N. He's a lion king. You're going to see that's the Antichrist, the little horn and his kingdom. But then he takes you and he looks up and he says, but look up in heaven. Here's what's going on. I see the ancient of days. And then he says, oh, I heard the little horn in his proud words. It turned my attention back to earth. And then I saw something going on at earth. And then I look back up. It's the son of man. So Daniel's using this, this two screen looking at the world. And now what I'm going to do is take that same analogy that Daniel used and throw it up here. There is the Antichrist kingdom. I've been telling you all about this future king that's going to rise up. And now my question is, where's the church? I just put it up there in the graphic. There's the Antichrist kingdom we know is coming. And my question to you is, where is the church? And the answer is what Paul just gave us. He's going to come down and take the church out of the world and then the Antichrist, his identity will be revealed. And then his kingdom is going to begin to devour the earth. And do you know where the church is? Let me show you my next slide. This is where the church is. First thing is this, marriage supper of the Lamb. Just like when the bride comes down and there's the groom and they're united, it's like a wedding. What happens after that? Everyone says, let's go eat. Time to party. And there is going to be a feast unlike any feast you've ever seen. We are going to be united, the bride and the groom, and it's going to be a celebration. And it's talked about, I put some of the passages there if you want to look them up. Okay? What else will go on in that top screen? Well, beam a seat of Christ. We now get evaluated for what we did as stewards. Everything you have on this earth has been given to you by God the Father. Your money, your possessions, your family, your children, your job, your power and authority, everything. And there are those who will use that to live fat lives, feed their lust for things of this world, and not utilize it for God's kingdom. And that's the moment where that will be seen. I'm on that point. You can move to it. You can go to 2 Corinthians 5 and read about it. And here's what happens. You as a Christian, a believer in Christ, you're going to go before the throne. Everything that you did and had gets set there. And the description is it's like a house. It's what you've built. Everything you've built and you put it there. If it was of kingdom value, Paul says it's like a house of gold. If it was for selfish ambition, if it was for feeding your own desires, it's like straw and hay. And God says, I'm going to test what you did with your life. And the fire comes down. And those houses that have straw and hay will burn up. But those of gold survive. And if you have a house that's a life that's straw and hay, and you, you see that in the moment, here's what I want you to know. You don't lose your salvation because you've already been caught up. Those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you, but there is a, a judgment of your stewardship. And those who were not good stewards, it will be known. In fact, Paul's description, it's like, here's my house of hay, the fire comes down, and oh my word, it's burning up! And he jumps out the window, and he stands up, and everyone around goes, man, you smell of smoke. We know what your life was about. You pursued your own selfish ambitions. And those who, who leverage what God has given them for the kingdom, they'll see it in that moment, and there's rewards. That's the other thing that there's rewards, there's crowns that are given you can get different crowns and awards. And God honors that and those who use their lives in the right way. That's why I'm always pressing on us to take what God has given you and use it to further the gospel here in this island. And there's one more thing going on, by the way. You're moving in. You are moving in. Jesus said in John 14, In my Father's house are many mansions. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself 
that where I am, you may be also. What a great dovetail with the passages we've already been reading. I'm going to go away, he says, but if I go away, I'm going to come again. And when I come, I'm going to gather you to myself. And here you go. In my father's house, many mansions. And we're moving in. We're moving into those. So I've just given you little pieces here to connect all these dots, right? Now, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the top screen. So he's called his church out of the world. And you say, well, pastor, what's going on down on earth? Well, that's the, that's the, that's the bottom screen. And I'm going to read this to you. I just kind of, actually, I just sat down and I penciled together a lot of different things. It was too much maybe for one slide. So would you just listen? This is the little horn in the kingdom that he puts together. <clears throat> Some of this we said last week. He'll rise up to lead the last world empire. He will wage war against saints. The anti, he will be anti-God, speaking against the Most High. His influence is great enough that he can even change the times. He will devour the world. Revelation 1 describes a one-world economic system. In Daniel 12, it says, At this time, knowledge of man will increase. It will increase like it has never been before in history. Wickedness will multiply, Matthew 24. Love will grow cold, also Matthew 24. The little horn will suffer a mortal wound, but he will be healed. The mortal wound by a sword, some type of weapon. And the whole earth will marvel at how he recovers from it and will follow after him. There will be a world economy global in its scope, Revelation 13. Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences, pandemics. God's judgment will be poured out on the earth. Authority over all people will be given to the little horn. Everyone whose name is not written in the book of life will follow him. There will be a series of judgments detailed in Revelation. Some of them sores for those on their skin who receive the mark of the beast to follow after him. The sea is described as being dead. We often talk about climate change and saving all of that. You get to the end and climate is eviscerated. The sea is dead and everything in it. Rivers and springs are contaminated and described as blood. The sun is affected and it, it scorches people. It has a fierce heat. The kingdom of the beast is plunged into darkness at one point. It says there will be a super earthquake. And it's described like this, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. Cities of nations will fall. Every island fled away in this earthquake and no mountaintops were seen. That is the bottom screen. While we, God's people, the church, have been caught away to be with him. Thank God for that. Now, there are those who, when it's snatched away, maybe they realize that. There'll be a time where some people put a faith in. The Bible says that, that the Antichrist will put him to death. It'll be a terrible time to live. And I want to say this too. I, I talked about the identity of this restrainer. Do you remember this? The spirit of the Antichrist, this little horn, is already here. All the way back when the New Testament was being written. They said, the spirit of the Antichrist is already here, and it has an influence. The spirit of the Antichrist is everything which stands in our world against God and his commandments. But Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, there's a restrainer, meaning there's something that exists in the world that is holding back the spirit of the Antichrist for it to grow to its max impact, its most dastardly and devastating effects on people. And you know what that restrainer is? This is what I believe. As I study this, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who exists in the people of God. And this is why Jesus said, you are the salt. Salt has 
a way of counteracting decay. The spirit of the Antichrist would bring about decay. But the existence of God's people in the world helps restrain that. You are the light, Jesus said. And without the light, the world will be enveloped in darkness in the kingdom of the Antichrist. And that's why when the trumpet of the Lord sounds and God's people, the church, are pulled out of this earth, there is no restraint. It's gone. And that is why the kingdom of the Antichrist will surge. In fact, if you remember, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, the lawless one will be revealed. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And he said that Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth, nothing, <clears throat> and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. But he says that he will not be revealed until that restrainer is gone. And do you know what else he says? He says that that, that little horn, that Antichrist, will be supercharged by Satan himself. Scary. But that's why what Paul is giving us should bring hope. It should be comforting. That's why he says, therefore, encourage one another. Because there's two events. There's the coming of the Lord where he gathers us together. And then we are not present at the day of the Lord when the judgment is being poured out. Now, I'm going to finish with this. I'm going to give you three reasons. These are my three favorite reasons to believe in this, to believe in the rapture of the church, in the gathering of the saints. The first is this, and that is the character and grace of God, that when you read Scripture, you see this, this, if you are in Christ, then you don't experience judgment that's being poured out. You go all the way back to Genesis where it says the judgment of God was poured out in the flood waters, but those who are in the ark were saved from it. In fact, in Christ's day, he used that as an analogy. Those who are in Christ will not experience that judgment. Just like those who are in the ark were spared from the judgment waters of the flood. You go through scripture, you see that those who had faith, they're in Christ, or their faith was in their God, put the blood of a lamb around their door frame, and when the death angel came into Egypt, slayed every firstborn. But those who had, the, who had faith were spared. They didn't experience the judgment of God. You can see that when Jericho was pummeled and collapsed, that Rahab was spared because of her faith. You can see where Lot says, this is an interesting conversation he has with God. The judgment of God is going to come on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God, that's not like you to mix the righteous with the unrighteous like that. That's his whole argument, that that's not the kind of God you are. And then that, in his pushing back on God, God comes back and says, okay, what, what do you got? I'll, I'll, I'll get 50. If I can find 50 salt and light people, you'll save the whole city, right? And you know the story. He, he's like, 50? I don't know about this. Have you seen that city? Woo! It, it, it makes, you know, Vegas look like a church. I don't know. You know, and it's like, he comes back, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? And it's like, he's bargaining with God. He gets them all the way down to 10. Look, if I could just find 10, will you save? Do you see, do you see the character of God in Scripture? If he's got judgment that's going to come down on the unrighteous, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And that's one of my strongest reasons I believe in this, that God will come down and pull the church out because we are his people. And then his judgment will come on those who are not. Now, the second reason I put is because the rapture answers how the return of Christ can be imminent. I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus could come back at any moment? That's what is always taught growing up. Jesus could come back at any day. And yet when I look at what Jesus said, his disciples said, when is this going to happen? And he said, this is going to happen 
And he lists a whole chapter of things that are going to happen before he comes back. Wars, rumors of wars, pestilences, famines, a whole bunch of stuff. And I always thought, well, how is it he could come back at any moment, but all that stuff has to happen first? That doesn't seem imminent. And the answer is what I'm giving you today. Because he can come back at any moment and say, trumpet of the Lord, cry of command, and pull you out at any moment. He can. And then all these other things are going to happen before the day of the Lord, which is a judgment day. Now, lastly, I'll just say this, is that God's, and this is what takes me back to Daniel, that God's unfinished plan for Israel still has to happen. Do you, do you realize that God's people right now in the world is a church? It is not Israel. Israel has abandoned him. Now, sometimes you have like a Jew who comes to know Christ as their Savior, and they, guess what? They're part of the church. They're not, the nation of Israel rejects him. And when you get to the end, you see this, this revival among Jews where they become the nation of God again, and that plan still has to happen. And that's why all this kind of fits together. We're talking about this moment in time. Now we're going to go back to Daniel next week, and we're going to see how this plan unfolds. And as we kind of build upwards to who this Antichrist is, I just want you to keep in mind that, that everything I'm saying today fits into that as well. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for what you've given us, for the encouragement. As, as Paul wrote and said, therefore, encourage one another with these words, that everything you're given us is to be an encouragement. Thank you that you're a God of grace. Thank you that you don't mix your judgment upon the righteous if we put our faith. When you talk about these, these historical plans, you have a plan for the return of your son. And you have a plan for your church. You have a plan, Lord, for Israel. And you're going to answer Daniel's prayers. We're going to see where he says, what about your people? Have you forgotten us? And he's going to continue to give that plan and unfold it as we go through Daniel. And everything we study, Lord, is to be an encouragement to us to know what the future holds and that Christ returns, and the saints inherit the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Or Christ calls us out of this world, and we are caught up into the clouds to be reunited where Paul says, there we will remain forever, united with Christ, a bride and his groom. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and we'll finish as we worship.